scripture for this evening is taken from Genesis chapter 11, verses 4 to 7. If you're going to follow along in the Red Pew Bible, that's on page 8. A little backdrop for this. At this point in the history of man, the flood is several generations in the past, and man has begun to repopulate the earth. And then man gets an idea. And the scripture says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. If Genesis, if Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, had a soundtrack, the soundtrack would be John Lennon's song, Imagine. I don't know if you've listened to the lyrics of that song, but the whole song that John Lennon sang was about, imagine if there's no God, imagine if there's no religion, no heaven, imagine there are no possessions, imagine what humanity could do if we could just get rid of all the things that in his mind divide us and the world could live as one. That's the way the song goes. It echoes the sentiment of what you read mankind doing in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. As we study and think about what this passage can teach us, I want us in our study this evening to start by just considering there's a tower that's built, the Tower of Babel. And the scripture indicates that it's a mighty tower, it's something that's new. It's something that hasn't, uh, hasn't been done before in all of human history. Back in the 1500s, there was a man that painted a painting of what he thought the Tower of Babel might have looked like. And when I was a kid, when I was in Bible class, one of our Bible class teachers had a copy of this on the wall. And I used to sit in Bible class and look at that and think, well, that Tower of Babel sure was, it was like a spiral and a lot of people going up the tower and things like that. More likely what the Tower of Babel looked like was this. That's called a ziggurat. It is a, it is a building. There are many of them that have been unearthed and found and some of them still standing in the uh, Middle East. And this is the kind of tower that more likely was being constructed because it's in the very same region, the very same part of the world where these events occurred. But regardless of what the tower looked like, it's what the tower represented and it's what mankind was trying to do. Just like John Lennon saying about wanting to imagine a world in which there is nothing to divide us and all the things, the petty things in his mind like religion and God that would get in the way, let's get rid of all those things and let's just be one and live a wonderful idyllic life. And the problem with that among many other things is 
mankind is sinful. In our hearts, we, we choose to do what's wrong, we choose to do what's evil, and instead of progress and things getting better and better, if we are left to our own devices as mankind, you know what the world's gonna do? It's gonna degenerate into chaos. As Tom mentioned a few moments ago, let's just talk tonight about what's happening with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. If you haven't already opened your Bible there, please do so. Genesis 11 verses one through nine. As Tom talked about just a moment ago, this was a unique time in world history because the flood of Noah's day had wiped the earth clean. All the people that were alive in Noah's day had died except for Noah and his descendants. And now we have got a fresh start, if you will. Just Noah and his descendants, and they begin to repopulate the earth. And what you find in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 11 is a new start. The scripture says, now the whole earth, Genesis 11 verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. There's a brand new start. And look at some of the characteristics of what's happening here. In the first place, the uniqueness of the time. The scripture tells us it's after the flood. This is a time when uh, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, after the flood, you see back in Genesis chapter 10, verse one, after the flood, those mentions, it's a unique time in world history. Incidentally, for those of you Bible scholars out there, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 are out of order chronologically. I hope that doesn't shake your faith or disturb you. They are out of order chronologically. The reason we know that's true is because in Genesis 11, look at verse five, each had his own language. Look again, if you would, at verse 20 of Genesis chapter 10, in their languages, they're divided by clans and languages. And then Genesis chapter 10, verse 31, their languages and their lands. He's talking about how people dispersed into the world after the Tower of Babel. But the reason why it's out of order chronologically is because the Genesis writer wants us to see how the world was repopulated. And then he brings us back in time and says, but there was an event that happened at Babel. There was this, this tower that was being built and you need to know about what happened there as well. And so it's out of order chronologically, but it's a unique time. It's a time after the flood, the world is empty and the unity of the culture that's being described in Genesis chapter 11, verse one, they, the whole earth was of one language and the same words. Did you know that people have done studies of world cultures and there is a strong attachment between language and culture? The words that a, a people in, a, in, a, in, in an area use, those words have a strong impact on the culture. And we invent words as humans based on our local experience. And so there's one language, one set of words, one culture in the world. Not only that, but as you look at verse two, you'll see the strangeness of their journey. If you and I decide to go on vacation, we get into our cars and we drive, but everywhere you go, somebody has already been. No matter where you go on the planet, somebody has already been there before you. But these people are going into territory where nobody lives, where nobody exists. Every step they take as they migrate farther and farther to the east is a step into a new world, a new territory, and they finally find a place, it says, in the land of Shinar, where it looks like a really good place to put down roots. 
that part of the world, we're talking about the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers in the Fertile Crescent, if you remember your grade school geography, in that area of the world, the land of Shinar, that is some fertile, fertile ground. And it's a place where you can plant crops and it's a place that would support a large population. And so the people in their wisdom, as they look at the land, they say, this is a great place for us to put down roots. This is a great place for us to start building a a, a city and, and an establishment. And so this new start has to do with people in a brand new world, if you will, going and putting down roots in a place that looks ideal, the land of Shinar. Next, as you look at verses three and four, there's a familiar refrain. In Genesis chapter 11, verse three, they said to one another as they settled in that land, come, let us make bricks, let us burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, verse four, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with, the top of it, with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. As you look at the passage, here's the familiar refrain. I want you to notice, they are talking a lot about themselves. Let us make bricks. And incidentally, that would have been very expensive to make bricks, to make, uh, there's technology involved here. It's, It's primitive technology, but technology nonetheless, they're making bricks. They didn't have to do that in order to build dwellings and places, but they have to use bricks in order to build a tower. Let us build ourselves a tower. I notice, notice on the screen, I've highlighted. They're talking about themselves an awful lot. Let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a tower. They're going to build a permanent structure. And this structure is going to represent something grand, something powerful, something majestic. Little boys, when they're playing in the dirt, in the sandbox, little girls, when they're playing outside, we want to build towers. It's just something about human nature. We want to build, see what I can construct. And that's what these people are doing as well. It's part of what people do. And they say, verse four, let us make a name for ourselves. Now we start to go haywire. We want a name for ourselves. We want people to look at us and look at what we've built here in the land of Shinar. And we want all people, because they all speak our language, we want them all to recognize our greatness. We want them all to recognize who we are and what we've accomplished. And future generations are gonna look at the tower we've built and they're gonna rise up and they're gonna say, this was a great generation. Look at what they did. They've made a name for themselves. Even today, if you go to the great cities of the world, almost everybody can tell you in that city, what's the tallest building in downtown Houston? Or what's the tallest building in New York City? Or what's the tallest building in the entire world? And there's a competition almost. It's an unspoken competition, but it's one nonetheless. And whatever building gets the title of tallest building in the world, they'll put a plaque on it and it'll be a trivia question on Jeopardy because there's something about that accomplishment. You've made a name for yourself. And so the question becomes this. I've been talking about the Tower of Babel for a few minutes now. What's the sin? What's really wrong with what they're doing here? There are a couple of suggestions. Suggestion number one is that these people are willfully, defiantly, intentionally failing to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. 
We don't want to fill the earth. We don't want to spread out like God told us to. We want to be in one place because we can get so much more accomplished. It's so much more efficient. It's so much more better. It's so much better if we just do it our way. But God had commanded mankind to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth and subdue it. And so one suggestion is these people are refusing defiantly. And verse 4 seems to indicate that may well be the case. The other suggestion, and there's probably a combination of these two, is that these people are just full of pride and hubris. This has nothing to do with God's will. This has nothing to do with pleasing God. This has nothing to do with obeying God. This has nothing to do with worshiping God. This is all about them, their name, their greatness, making a name for themselves. I suggest that it's probably a combination of both of those things, that God is upset with what the people are doing in the days of Babel. But it's a familiar refrain. Let me pause and make some application for just a moment. People dream and plan and build all the time. We spend our days daydreaming, planning, building. This is part of being human. We, we think about what we're going to build, what we're going to construct, what we're going, maybe you're building a life, maybe you're building a physical structure, but we're always, we've got dreams. Castles in the air sometimes people have. I'm building something conceptually and I'd like to have that or I'd like to build that one day. The Tower of Babel episode reminds us, brothers and sisters and friends, there is a danger in your dreams and the danger is that we leave God out. That we spend our time thinking about making a name for ourselves, accomplishing something great, doing something significant, making an important difference in the world, and we don't think about God. We don't think about what He wants, and we don't think about how what we're doing can glorify Him. That's the danger. And what these people are doing, let us build the tower for ourselves. Let us make a way that we can make a name for ourselves. That's the problem. The fact that they're doing these things and there is no indication that God's glory or God's name or God's holiness, any of those things is on their minds. There's none of that. There's a danger in our lives, even good people, even Christian people. There's a danger that we'll make plans and goals and dreams and it'll have nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with praising and worshiping and honoring him. And you know what the Bible says about those kinds of things? Unless the Lord builds the, t- builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Psalm 127 verse 1. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11, I did all that stuff, Solomon says, and I found that it was all vanity and striving after the wind. Trying to build a tower, make a name for myself, vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness, worthlessness. That's what I found, Solomon wants us to know. Again, the rich fool who couldn't, he didn't have enough places to store his crops and so he tore down his barns so he could build bigger barns and God looked at him and said, you're a fool. This night your soul be required of you. Whose then will these things be that you've stored up for yourself? Luke chapter 12, verse 20. God reminds us repeatedly to think about what we're dreaming about, to think about what's going on in our hearts, what we're planning on and what we're working for and ask the question, and it's an important question, it's an essential question, how does this relate to God? And if I really am seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, how do my plans and my dreams and my goals serve that? Because that's what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian. 
James 4, 13 through 17 talked about making plans. And he said, when you make plans, Christians, and you leave God out, you are boasting arrogantly before God. You're acting like you've got all the time in the world and all the energy in the world. And you're not thinking about who God is. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. James 4, 15. The Tower of Babel reminds us that one of the oldest sins that people have committed is to make plans and set dreams and goals and leave God out. And we still do it today. Next, there is a perceptive God in heaven. Look at verses five and six as you look at Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 verse five, the scripture indicates, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Structure. Genesis 11 verses one through nine has a structure to it. It's called a chiasm. That is verse one and verse nine match. Study this for yourself, okay, later on. Verse two and verse eight match. Verse three and verse seven match. And verse four and verse six match. Verse five is the center. It's a Hebrew device. They used it often in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New. But the point of a chiastic structure like this is the middle verse, verse five, is the bottom line. This is what you ought to pay attention to. This is the main point. This is what God really wants you to hear out of this entire episode. And notice what it says. It says, God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. God is unimpressed by even the mightiest human efforts. We've got supercomputers that are solving all of our genetic questions and God looks at that and says, I invented genetics. God looks at the buildings and the towers that we construct and he says, those are pretty small. God looks at the technological advances we're making in all kinds of fields like medicine and, and uh, technology and oil and gas development in this part of the world. And God looks at all those things and he is unimpressed by those things. We may think we've made a great name for ourselves. We write history books about ourselves, but God says, I'm not impressed by any of that. I'm the creator. I'm the one who made this world. He's unimpressed. He, and notice what it says in verse five, God came down, he condescends to come see this mighty tower that these people are building. Then when you look at verse six, God foresees dangers of which we are unaware. He foresees dangers of which we are unaware. Behold, they're all one people, God says, they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Go back in your minds for just a moment to Noah in his day. The world became more and more corrupt. And in Genesis chapter six and verse five, the Bible says, every thought of the intents of man's heart was only on evil continually. And God is saying essentially, if they keep on this course that they've already chosen for themselves here at Tower of Babel, everything's restarted. They're going to end up in the exact same place they were in the days of Noah. If something is not done about this, he sees danger of which we are sometimes unaware. You know, sometimes we wonder why God answers prayers differently than maybe we ask, or maybe he doesn't answer some prayers at all. Sometimes God sees things in our lives that would be a hindrance to us that we don't see ourselves. And then he accurately identifies the source of the danger. And God looks at mankind and he says, the problem here is that they are all of one language, they are all of one speech, they're all united. And that's a problem for humanity. 
And so instead of sending another flood like he did in the days of Noah, which he promised he would not do again, God instead judges the world in a different way. As you look at verses seven through nine, God chooses to judge the world differently than he did in the days of Noah. Watch what he does. In verse seven of Genesis 11, the scripture says, God speaking to himself, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the first thing God chooses to do is to confuse their language. And it says in verse eight, the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth. By the way, maybe what they were willfully refusing to do. And they left off building the city. So there are two effects of confusing their language. Effect number one is they're not building the city in Shinar anymore. The building of the city is halted. The second effect is the people are dispersed over the face of the earth. Why are there so many languages in the world today? Why do you have to get Duolingo or one of those apps on your phone if you want to learn a different language and you have to work really hard and it is a hard thing to do to learn another language because God is the one who confused the languages of the world. He's the one who created them and it was a judgment. It was a negative thing because mankind was on a headlong rush towards sin and toward corruption and toward defilement. And God said, I'm gonna put a stop to this, I have to. I can't flood the world again, I promised I wouldn't. I'm gonna stop them before they go too far. One writer that I was reading wrote this, I thought it was very helpful. He said, God knew that nationalism and warfare which is what resulted from people having different languages. Now we've got different nations, different regions, people speak different languages. Nationalism and warfare were lesser problems than collective apostasy. And then when you think about the rest of what happens in the Bible, God is constantly working with the nations and he uses righteous nations to judge unrighteous nations. And sometimes he uses unrighteous nations to judge more unrighteous nations. God rules in the kingdoms of men, the Bible says in Daniel chapter four, verse 17. But it seems when you read this passage that the existence of languages and different cultures as a result is in part one way in which God slowed down the spread of sin and the consequences of sin. As you think about this, there are some New Testament things to consider. What was scattered at Babel has been reunited in the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, you remember the first miracle that happened? There were tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles in Acts two verses one through four. And the Bible also says they all spoke in other languages as the spirit gave them utterance. You remember that in Acts chapter two? On the day of Pentecost, all of a sudden, God did a miracle at the Tower of Babel where he created all these languages and all these, by by extension, all these cultures and nations. But then in Acts chapter two, after the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible tells us that God reunites the world. And you know what the church is? The church is not just a social club. It's not just a nice group of people that we all like each other and we're friends with each other. The church is the culmination of God's plan in this world to save people and to unite people. And the way he unites us is in Jesus Christ and in his church through the cross. 
And that's why those apostles were able to speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost. So these people from different lands and nations and cultures, they could all hear the gospel in their own language. And even today, that ought to be our passion. That ought to be our interest. We want the gospel to be heard by the people of this world in their language because we want all people to be one in Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 tells us we're brought near by the blood of Christ. What Jesus did at the cross was a uniting act. In Galatians 3, 28, you are all one in Christ Jesus, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all level ground at the foot of the cross. John 17, 20 through 22, Jesus prayed, Father, I want them all to be one, even as you and I are one. What God did at the Tower of Babel slowed down sin, just like rods in a nuclear reactor, I don't know if you know how nuclear reactors work, but the the chain reaction starts going and if you don't slow it down, it gets too hot and it melts down. And so they, they insert rods and those rods in the nuclear reactor, they slow down the process of what's happening inside that nuclear reactor so we can actually use the energy. The Tower of Babel was something like that, slowing down the progress of sin just enough so that the world didn't end up like it was in the days of Noah again. We're still lost, we still need a savior but now we can be reunited in the cross of Jesus Christ. We serve an amazing God, a wise God, a God who has done some amazing things in history. And it's good for us as the people of God to remind ourselves from time to time what happens when we dream and leave God out. Perhaps you're here tonight, you're not a New Testament Christian. If you want to obey the gospel, we'd love to help you to do that. Or if we can help you by praying for you and praying with you, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?